Hello and welcome to Last Week on Earth with Gary. We're excited to launch a new series of shorter podcast episodes where we give you a deeper look into what is happening right now globally and regionally and Gary's insights into it. Gary's digital twin of the globalized world enables us to do complex analysis and have valuable insight into topics we deal with. Today, we delve into the changing landscape of global interconnectedness, regionalization of trade, investment, technological exchange, and a close look at China, Russia, and Europe. We're your hosts, Gary's Executive Director, Odessa Primus, and founder, Michael Coran. And this is Last Week on Earth with Gary. Enjoy, comment, and subscribe. Hey, Michael. Hey, Odessa. It's great to be back. You wrote an article recently for the Czech Economic Times called This World Isn't for Europe, Chinese Reforms and Global Decoupling, and mentioned that global decoupling until now has been pretty foggy. However, this is changing and we're now seeing a world that is deeply fragmented. In which sectors is this most prominent and what should we be looking out for? Well, that's an intriguing question because um, a couple of days ago, the DHL published a new uh, global interconnectedness uh, index. And it uh, clearly shows that um, the, the global trade did not slow down pretty much at all. So looking back, there is not much data that would support the argument about the global decoupling. Yet uh, what happened recently is that uh, all those signs about um, diversification of, of um, economic strategies and, and regionalization of trade. It's not only trade, it's also investment, it's also techni- uh, technological exchange, uh, intellectual property exchange. Uh, so these strategies are clearly pointing at a world which is uh, more fragmented. So once again, the past data do not show some some fundamental decline in globalization, uh, but it's the political decisions that outline this uh, future in a much prominent way. Are there any highlighted sectors? The most prominent sector is definitely uh, high tech. But what I would like to stress is that if you look at, um, at the uh, reform plans that Chinese leadership introduced, uh, last week or two weeks ago, there is a clear uh, sign that China is getting ready for a world which is um, less interdependent, meaning that China is now very clear about its goals of being less in, uh, less dependent, especially on the what we can call the, the Western uh, uh, global ecosystem and is doing everything it can. Um, and as I said, the, the, tech, the high-tech sector, you know, um, investment into chips development um, and other IT services, that's, let's, let, that's the most prominent thing. But already some eight or nine years back, Chinese leadership introduced something called Made in China. Uh, and that, that that was the sort of first sign of this um, of this strategy or of this movement. Now it's going on steroids. You wrote that Europe will have difficulty finding its place in the sun in this new world. What are the circumstances for Europe and how is it different from other regions? Europe is more dependent on the global trade than the United States. It is it's hard to say if it's at this point more dependent than China on the global trade. It might be similar, or, or you know, it might it might look uh, differently in in uh, different sectors. 
but Europe is uh, extremely dependent on both exports. Uh, the European economies are very dependent on, on exporting goods, um, but perhaps more importantly, because it's a more complex issue, it is dependent on imports. So basically, uh, about 60% of goods that are being traded to or, or that are being imported to the European Union are so-called intermediate goods, which means these are goods that are used for further manufacturing. And there are sectors or, or, or commodities or products uh, that are almost exclusively imported from China or from other, other um, global economy actors. And um, we can talk about this dependency further, but that, that's one issue. The other issue is that, that Europe is now uh, on the brink of the of two most fundamental um, economic revolutions um, in the past um, hundred years. Uh, one is the so-called green transition, the other is the so-called um, digital transition. And for both of these transitions, Europe needs precisely the goods that are being imported from, from China. The third point is that there are huge uh, regional differences within countries and, and across the board in Europe. Uh, so, so there are regions that are really highly dependent uh, on, uh, on, on imports of goods, on exports of goods, and are very vulnerable towards uh, both of these transitions because there is not enough capital, the social or socio-economic conditions are not um, um, uh, ready enough for, for these transi transitions. So what we see is sort of a perfect storm um, of um, global conditions which are simply not pl uh, playing well into the China, <laughs> into the European cards. And, and perhaps the, the last point on it is that the, fra <clears throat> the fragmented European space when it comes to invest investing in high technologies, uh, in, uh, in research and development, means that Europe does not have the sort of leverage or the sort of instrument that the United States or China has uh, to simply decide <clears throat> which way to go and how to invest and how to make the breakthrough development, uh, which is a good thing in one way, because the diversity um, of European countries and European regions um, it, it's the backbone of Europe, right? So, so I would be very scared if someone comes with some sort of a central planning, you know, sort of communist approach to uh, to research and development and to industrial transformation. Yet, under these circumstances, it, it simply makes Europe a, a lame duck. Is Europe responding to new trends and challenges and opportunities? Why is Europe still lagging and which areas is it most urgent? Europe is responding by uh, crafting a lot of strategies. <laughs> it is uh, responding by creating this sense of urgency. It is also responding by allocating a lot of money or, or, or um, incentives to uh, change this. But at the end of the day, uh, it is, I'm not saying it's not enough, but it's just not crafted in a way that the businesses um, and on and the research and development really make the breakthrough development as is happening now in the United States or in China. Um, you can see it after um, late late last year in 2022 when the United States introduced the Inflation Reduction Act, which essentially is a huge subsidy for domestically 
created uh, innovations, um, especially in the high-tech business. Um, a lot of companies, first, a lot of com European companies started to think, hmm, that there are, there are good opportunities, there are good conditions uh, in the United States, why not to move to the United States? The initial European response was very defensive one. Uh, it was a response of, um, let's say, of, of a conflict with the United States. Uh, this initial re response seems to me that it sort of dissipa dissipated. How would you describe the new trajectories of Russia and China since the invasion? That's another very crucial point, because um, as you said, the, the contours of the future world have been sort of murky in a way. Um, and now with the deepening interconnection between China and Russia, we can see that, that um, there is a clear trend or clear path towards more um, regionalization and even creating parallel or competing um, economic uh, trade ecosystems. And also if you look at the strategic way China and Russia are approaching towards building new ties with um, countries and regions like South Africa, um, like um, um, East Asian economies, but now very recently also Middle East, which which has been for, for decades has been uh, under the Chinese radar. Um, so you can see that, that China um, and Russia are approaching very strategically these new alliances. Uh, and it's again, it's not like the Western um, Hemisphere is not uh, doing anything. We saw a, a very deep uh, Australian um, and United States and uh, UK um, defense partnerships. So there are responses, but especially Europe per se um, have been approaching you know, the, 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 these external global uh, relations in, in a very non-strategic way. This, this, is, this is a lot of to do with the uh, colonial history and the sort of recent uh, resentments or, or um, negative sentiments that, that um, African or South American countries have towards Europe. But it is also to do with the fact that Europe is simply unable to think strategically about this relationship. So, so in a nutshell, what we see is we can see that uh, there are strategic um, alliances being built around the world. Um, uh, and it means that China would be in um, maybe a decade or, or 15 years, unless something changes, uh, more and more independent uh, from Europe. But Europe will not be more independent. Do you think China is learning more from this experience than Europe is able to absorb in terms of lessons? I believe everyone is learning the right lessons, but given the centralized, um, hyper-centralized Chinese approach to governing, uh, China is able to um, apply these lessons quicker and more efficiently. And again, I'm not saying that's the right approach, and, and I very much hope that it will backfire at some point because it hinders creativity or uh, you know, it might hinder uh, creativity. Uh, but China is not only learning from the fact that, that uh, the West was eff effectively able to cut off Russia from its energy sector. Uh, and that's precisely, that, that precisely explained the fact that China is now doing everything to not being as dependent. Another point is that 
China, you know, moving to more towards the security um, question. Uh, China is watching very, um, very closely the way West is helping Ukraine, and uh, and it and it's absorbing these lessons and putting it into work when it comes to its own Taiwanese and in general um, its own security strategy. We talk a lot about diversification at Gary, whether it's highlighting trade vulnerabilities of Europe or dependencies on specific countries like China and Russia. What are China and Russia doing to diversify and how does it compare to Europe's efforts? China is, uh, is changing very rapidly and it's changing in a pace that we have not seen for decades and decades. Um, and the strategy is precisely what, what I um, uh, try to describe. That's, that's the sort of strategic approach to trade, to economic relationships. Um, and. Um, by enveloping other regions and other countries um, so that it can extract resources, so that it can uh, extract um, energy from these countries, so that it can potentially in the future um, uh, export its own goods to to these countries. And uh, as I said, Europe is... It's not that Europe would not have a strategy towards these countries, but these strategies were usually um, national. We're not Europe-wide. In a way, in many in many cases, uh, European countries would be competing against each other uh, uh, in these regions, or they, they would they would adopt more of a tactical approach, um, also crowned by the by the tr- very traditional European uh, tactics. Let's pour some money on a problem and let's see if something uh, useful grows up uh, out of that. So that's I think that that's that's the difference. What about internal efforts? If we take Europe and China as entities, how do they compare in both ability and effort to internally strengthen production and trade? Well, I can follow up on what I said. That's that China is much more centralized country, and uh, the last reform plans that I that I mentioned um, are not only aiming at um, at uh, the independence or or at uh, restructuring its global relationships. But it's also aiming at even increasing the uh, co- the, the grip of the communist co- country <laughs> of the communist party over um, Chinese economy, over Chinese research, especially of, of the Chinese research and development. And so there's the main difference is this, the centralization of China or the central centralized grip and the diversity that we have in Europe. And again, I very much hope that that the European diverse approach will prevail. But at this point, I'm doubtful without saying that that Europe should uh, be more centralized. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that the global conditions do not um, play well into the sort of diverse and, and, you know, much more painful decision making process. especially when, when comparing to China and uh, the United States. What would you say are the regional differences in Europe and how does that impact the politics and society and economics of those regions or even the EU as a whole with the diversity within the regions? That's one of the crucial questions or one of the crucial issues. Um, the European regions are uh, very different in terms of their economic structure. So you have regions that are um, fairly innovative, that have um, high uh, 
attraction for investment that are highly digitalized. These regions are usually around uh, large um, uh, cities or, or large urban areas. Then you have regions which are mostly touristic, that are dependent on tourism. Um, and these regions are also less populated, which, which creates its own uh, plethora of issues. But most importantly, you have highly industrialized regions, especially in Central Europe, Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, and some German regions. And these regions were already uh, scarred uh, by the energy crisis of the past months, uh, because they, these industries are um, energy let's say inefficient or, or highly intense, the, the energy intensity is really high in compared to other regions. And also you will need massive investments into restructuring the, the structure so that it can compete um, uh, within the new global environment. And the problem is that, that um, to sort of level the playing field is pretty much impossible. You would need such massive financial and social transfers to, to make this uh, more equal that it's it's simply impossible to imagine also because the European countries um, necessarily compete among themselves over these resources so that's one point and the other point is that you, you see that already under these circumstances of the past three to maybe even ten years you can see the um, tilt towards more populism, towards more um, uh, extremes views of politics, towards more internal uh, societal and, and political divisions. And that have been happening under fairly uh, good economic conditions, right? But if nothing really changes and, and really quickly, uh, then the economic hardship will translate into the social hardship and that will even boost the, let's say, populist or radical or extremist politics, uh, which will have very negative impact on, on European democracy. So this is one of the crucial issues that I think we should be very serious about. Last question, similar to my first one, what should Europe be paying attention to right now and what should be done? Well, Europe should, first of all, somehow um, manage to combine streamlining of the research and development funding so that, that you have several um, areas that are really priority. And that's the one thing which is not happening so far, despite all the efforts that the European Commission and the national states are, uh, are doing. The second thing is think very hard how to translate uh, the funding of the research and innovation into a real impact and to make sure that, that there is less and less brain drain uh, from Europe to the United States or even maybe to Asia. Because what we see is um, there is a lot of money put into the fundamental or basic research in Europe, but then the capitalization goes somewhere else, which is really bad because essentially you're spending public money on research but there is little return um, of that money back into uh, the economy. So that's one thing. Uh, the other thing, and it's again, it's a dilemma. It's um, uh, <laughs> how to respond to the, the global regionalization. Because, for example, France, 
and, and other countries are pushing into more um, autarky, uh, in especially in the strategic areas like um, like um, medical uh, goods or or rare earth materials and so on. So so Europe, you know, if Europe starts closing itself and and will try to prepare for this more regionalized or deglobalized f- uh, future, it will actually help the se- the, the process by uh, which is essentially not good for Europe so so that's that's a big big dilemma and um, so so if if we see that the world is really closing or, or the regions are closing then the response of Europe must be to approach very strategically its relationships to other regions namely obviously the United States I, I realize this is very difficult and and also we don't know what sort of um, U.S. leadership uh, will there be after the elections uh, next year, uh, but also to East Asia, South Africa, uh, South America. The problem is that that everyone seems to be talking about it for many years, uh, but nothing is really happening. And since I'm not a policymaker or a politician, this is really a political decision to uh, to make. And the third um, the third point is to uh, make sure that the the digital and green transition uh, are as just as possible, meaning that there won't be um, huge parts or or even layers of societies or regions which will be left behind, because uh, um, already now we can see that that both of the transitions have very unequal impact on on the European regions, and um, if this will uh, be unsolved. Uh, then the deepening of of, um, um, of the social uh, conditions in Europe uh, will accelerate and it will have um, very dire consequences for the European unity and for the European polity and politics in general. Are there strategies that are being talked about that would prevent that? I think there is uh, one almost anecdotal example which is being used um, more and more frequently and that's the so-called Lisbon strategy which was um, crafted um, um, basically in in the year 2000 and that was um, a time when Europe was leading in in many high-tech areas especially when it comes to cell phones Um, you you know if, if, if you remember back in 2000 what were the most um, popular cell phones. It would be Nokia. It would be Ericsson. Um, you would not have iPhone or anything like that. And back then, the European Commission or the European Union crafted the the so-called Lisbon strategy, which uh, should put Europe on the map as as the most innovative, environmental environmentally savvy, but also socially conscious um, um, leader in the world. And it was under the most uh, positive circumstances that Europe could have, uh, while and 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 basically it just did not work. Europe is not even in the in the room with the big actors when it comes to high tech development. So twenty years have passed. Uh, the strategy which was crafted under very favorable economic conditions did not work. Uh, and now we have dire socioeconomic conditions and global conditions. So I'm very uh, I'm very apprehensive about how these strategies could work uh, for the future. And again, I'm not I'm not trying to be um, uh, killjoy or or 
you know, it's it's very it's very it's it's really not difficult to criticize. I'm, but what I'm trying to say is I'm I'm just trying to uh, point at the fact uh, that it's it's going to be very very difficult, and and the trajectory does not fill me with optimism. If you want better insights into challenges and decisions you or your business are facing, Gary's analytical services are of unmatched complexity and high accuracy. Whether your questions are on the green energy transition, trade and supply chains, or political and security related, contact us for a free consultation and see how you can optimize your decision making. Thank you for listening. This has been Last Week on Earth with Gary. Until next time, have a great day.